I cannot express the profound gratitude I feel for being entrusted with the monumental task of transforming the culture of a school with such a historically dismal reputation. I'm humbled to say we did it. Humbled because I have a team of dedicated, passionate professionals who caught the vision and a visionary leader who believed I could get the job done. 70% decrease in discipline incidents over two years. 50% decrease in chronic absenteeism. 70% decrease in fights and violent offenses this year. 40% reduction in out-of-school suspensions. 94.4% attendance rate, the highest in six years. Orderly hallways. Scholars engaged in rigorous instruction from top teachers in the district. 100% of our teachers report they work in a safe school, up from 40% three years ago. Can't wait to see the impact on achievement. Everybody knows what a good school looks like. One great teacher in each classroom, dynamic principal, high test scores, order everywhere, schedules set, curriculum specified, teachers teaching, students learning. But what if this framing, though not quite wrong, misses the mark? Maybe a good school is a place where the boundaries separating classroom spaces are permeable and teachers share responsibility for all students' well-being and achievement where everything in the school is negotiable except the well-being and development of the teachers and students in it, where students know they are cared for and respond by learning to care in return. Maybe a good school is a space where all are growing and equity is a constant concern, where each one has a voice and everybody has responsibility, where teachers are leaders and leaders are always learning. I'm Barb Stengel, your host for this podcast. Join us for Chasing Bailey as we try to figure this out. We already know that teams organized educators' efforts at Bailey STEM Magnet Middle School, and that leadership was delegated to those close to the action. Those same themes dominate as we think in this episode about the culture transformation that supported the Bailey shift from persistently dangerous and academically unmoored in 2011 to solidly satisfactory on the district school assessment measure in 2015. That movement was spearheaded by Chief of Culture Claire Jasper, whom you met in the first episode, and who you heard at the outset reading her own Facebook post from 2015. Dr. Jasper's post sets up the theme of this episode, Love and Limits. As I pointed out last time, there was love at Bailey, but that love set limits, boundaries that were not punitive or stifling, but made it possible for scholars to learn and grow. 
Here, Dr. Jasper shares the measurable outcomes that tend to be taken as indicators of good schools. But she notes that these outcomes are only a start, pointing us in the direction of student growth academically and every other way. Today, I introduce you to the culture team. You will hear from Dr. Jasper and others about what the culture team was, how they operated, and what difference they made. Here's Dr. Jasper talking with me recently. Um, the first thing Christian told me was, is I have a budget to create this team. Um, and he told me that we had to uh, craft a vision statement for the team. And so I did that. Um, and um, we had three, three groups of people primarily that drove the work around the culture transformation at our school. Um, that was our culture team, our PBIS committee, and um, also we had an SEO committee as well. But the culture team was the primary team. So um, what went into that was, um, of course, looking at the needs of the school around those culture needles. Um, we knew we needed some help with discipline, so a deans of scholars, as we called them, was a natural choice. Um, of course, I was hired and called the chief of culture and exceptional ed because a lot of um, the disciplinary issues and the achievement issues in our school were related to a high number of special ed kids with behavior concerns. Um, we knew we needed mental health providers. We knew we needed social workers because we had families um, with needs that were impacting um, their children's ability to engage in school. We need. We knew we needed to en engage our families um, with the school as well. So uh, basically those were the criteria and the, and the needs that we looked at when we looked at what types and what roles, what types of people and what roles do we need um, at Bailey. And the people that you attracted, a number of them were with you at Johnson, right? That is correct, yes. And what was it about their work at Johnson that made you believe okay, this is the kind of person or just the caliber of person or the talents of the people. What was it about that, that group? Well, you know, you have to know that Johnson grew out of a school called Merle Exceptional Ed School, which is where I um, started my work with kids with severe behavior problems. And Merle was a school that was founded on the 12 principles of re-education um, by Dr. Nicholas Hobbs from Vanderbilt. And those principles were the life core of that school. So everyone who was attracted to the work at Merle were people who were attracted to, to that sense of, um, uh, uh, of a value and a belief system that would drive the work to not give up on kids who were troubled and troubling. So uh, it was, and then of course I moved from Merle to be the principal at Johnson and there were some Merle folks there, but some of the folks I hired from Johnson who went with me from Johnson to Bailey I hired at Johnson but again there was just a certain heart around the work that we always looked for when we looked for any teachers or staff to work at Johnson and um, part of that was if you were a teacher I looked for qualities that said you were a teacher counselor that you were more than just an academic teacher. Most of the teachers I worked with, in fact, all of them from Johnson were exceptional ed teachers because we were an exceptional ed school. Um, I also looked for paraprofessionals and, um, and, and, and just everybody who had that sense of, I'm more than just a paraprofessional. I'm an educator counselor and I'm here to learn counseling skills to help these children. So those were the kind of people I was accustomed to working with and accustomed to recruiting. And of course, when they closed Johnson, um, I was really fortunate that a nice little core group of people came over. Mm -hmm. 
Um, okay, so you said you knew you needed help with discipline, and that's one of the things I want to ask about. Um, because it's it seems to me that at Bailey there were there was both love and limits. That it, it wasn't just about loving kids and caring for them, although there was that. And it wasn't just about limits, although there were. And I pulled out an email that you sent to the staff. I think it was shortly after you came in, where you talked about um, a blitz on disruptive behavior. And it was interesting because I think it was the first... Uh, I think it was September of 2013, which would have been the start of your tenure. And I was struck by the fact that you were um, that you were earning the trust of teachers because in this, you talked about the blitz on disruptive behavior, but then you also said, we will back you up. Whatever you say, we will be there. The culture team will step in and do what they need to. Do you remember that? And do you can you talk about, you know, yes, there was discipline, but there was so much more than discipline. Yes, I, I remember that email vaguely, but I can tell you what went behind that is that we knew at Bailey, we had all of these new what I call rock star teachers, but a lot of them had a lot of trepidation about working with the behavior at the school. They A lot of them admitted the behavior thing is not my lane. Mm-hmm. I can teach, but I can't manage all this disruption. And so, um, you know, when we looked at the, the things or the characteristics that or the or the elements that would um, um, would uh, characterize what we wanted for the ethos of the school. Um, we talked about things like caring and supportive relationships, a safe and orderly school environment, along with inquiry and data-driven decision-making, a, and a keen focus on teaching and learning. Well, you couldn't get that keen focus if you couldn't get the safe and orderly school environment. So we had to make a commitment to a lot of young teachers and learning advisors that we would be there for you. We were the experts on behavior. We, we, we'd been in the trenches we we'd done it it's what we were called to education to do mm-hmm. um and they had to feel like um we have somebody who can help us not only just go in there and and be muscle but go in there and teach the teachers and model for the teachers how to manage the behavior as well um, but we had to let them know that we were coming urgently um and and we understand your need and we're a team well i really pay, appreciate what you just said about we're, we're not just going in there to be muscle um it, it, you were there to be backup. You were there to be, I was always um, amazed by the way the dean's first move was to help the teachers keep the kids in the classroom. That's not to say that you never took kids out of the classroom, but the first move always was, okay, how can you change what you're doing as a teacher so that it's possible for this kid to stay here? And, oh, by the way, what does he or she have to do to take responsibility for their own behavior? Yes, exactly, Barb. You know, it's just a fundamental truth. A child who's not in the classroom in front of a quality teacher cannot learn because they're not there where the instruction was happening. Our suspension rates when I came to, to Bailey were astronomical. So we knew that the easiest fix was is get the kids in the class. If we can get them in there and then teach them how to behave in there, the instruction piece is there. These teachers are amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one thing is between year one and year two, 
is, you know, you talked about how, um, how they were part of the a whole but it didn't feel like that at first and the teachers questioned that what does dr jasper what does uh, dr jasper do uh, because because they didn't necessarily see it because we were setting up systems and and building uh, the vision but we were intentional that in year two we have to be integrated if we're not integrated we're just muscle uh, and and muscle can only last for so long, uh, and and the teachers will leave because they'll be disempowered by the muscle coming in. We we were conscious that we have to develop teachers to be able to do this work and work ourselves out of a job. Uh, so that that piece I think was real important that to know that you know, it, you know it it looks like pie in the sky and it, at its high point, but there were some struggles coming in. Um, just making sure that that we didn't lose the trust of the teachers because they weren't sure about what we were doing if they if they weren't seeing any impact from what we were doing that was important uh, and the other thing was is we didn't want teachers leaving Bailey not being well-rounded and able um, to be empowered to do this themselves when they went to the other places in their lives mm-hmm. uh, in their professional lives one of the things I'm most proud of is when I hear from some of those young teachers and they talk about how they can manage a class like a like a boss um, because our deans went in and they modeled and they supported. Um, Claire, the other thing that your team talked about the other day was their own responsibilities and their autonomy and authority and the, the way you delegated the tasks of the team in ways that indicated your confidence in them. Was that conscious? Can you talk about that at all? Definitely was. One of the things um, that I've always worked to be as an administrator is a capacity builder. And and another thing I always understood is you can't do the work alone. Um, um, a visual of a, of a four-legged chair or a four-legged stool has always been one I hear about when people talk about what works in education. You've got to have all of the legs. That's why when we look at those things that characterized our ethos, those four things um, were intentional. Four was intentional. So then from there, we grafted out our initiatives under all four of those areas and who would be responsible what components would be there and the people responsible and we spread that responsibility out across the whole culture team um, some of us doubled up in places but it was primarily so that you know the work the lift wouldn't be too hard mm-hmm. um, but yes it was very intentional um, another thing that I'm very proud of is the professional trajectory of my deans uh, one is a business owner in the area of advocacy the other mm-hmm. is now an assistant principal at a high school mm-hmm. uh, so building you know you want to build people to the the point that they leave you is sad but that's what you want to do and and that's the goal of any capacity building leader you've already addressed this kind of but I want to ask you explicitly I really felt as though what was going on on the culture side and what was going on on the academic sides really weren't sides at all but two sides of the same coin that there was a kind of seamlessness to the work that that the culture team was doing and the work that the academic folks were doing. And you put it in, you know, if, the, if, there's not, if there's not order, if there's not a focus on teaching and learning, if there's not this, then the learning can't happen. But again, do you have a philosophy about that or a, a, a sense of what you were doing, both at Johnson and at Bailey, to kind of make those two things seamless? 
Certainly, um, as a teacher with, of students with behavior um, concerns, one of the things I learned early on was that the more engaging my lessons were, the less behavior I had to have. So I kind of had a, a made up percentage. I can knock out 85% of the behavior in this classroom with good instruction. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew that. And, and that's why I always say the instruction was there. I just needed to get the kids to engage. <laughs> Uh, so yes, it was very intentional. Everything we did was that yin and yang and hand in hand. We used to have, I don't know if you remember those bulldog community days mm -hmm. where yes. the culture team would take half the school yes. and do programming for half a day around cultural issues and concerns and they were fun for the kids. But that was also designed so that teachers could have extended planning, um, um, vertical planning. Mm -hmm. And that's why we did that. Then we'd flip and we'd do the other half of the school so the other half of the teachers could go and do that. So there again is that yin and yang of instruction and culture. They, they're, they, they, they are not inseparable. They can't be. Um, I'm super proud of the fact that Bailey was at the cutting edge of the SEL movement. When Castle came to Nashville and they visited Bailey, um, and we we were one of the tour sites that the leaders who came from around the country were so impressed. Number one, which was funny to Christian and I was with our relationship, how synergetic we were and how we mm -hmm. finished each other's sentences, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that they wanted to see more of what we were doing. Um, so we were at the cutting edge of, of Castle, uh, of, of SEL in the district. We were doing, we were looking at integration before the district was ready to go there. In fact, we pulled, um, the, the competencies and standards from a castle um, site uh, that was ahead of us. And we started using those standards even back then. And we always talked about integration. Part of the integration for us uh, started with breakfast in the classroom where we, we used that to buy back some time with our kids and integrate morning meetings into the classroom setting so that those morning meetings were, were, were semi-separate, but they always ended with a message that led right into the instruction. And by the end of the Bailey thing, we had moved to having classroom meetings where teachers were meeting every block with their kids in those circles and introducing instruction while enforcing SEO practices. Okay, another, another potential impact of the culture team on instruction was, this came up the other day, that they felt like they had a voice in hiring. Again, do you remember that? Was that intentional? Yes, they. Yes, we were as a team, and there was um, probably never a hiring committee at Bailey that it did not include uh, more than one member of the culture team. And uh, the beauty of the whole team of Bailey and and the and the nature of our family was that all of the voices were respected um, on in that process. I, I, that's not always the case, Claire. <laughs> It's not always the case. I mean, you and I are sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, Claire knows this is just good common sense and I know it's just good common sense. So the question is, why isn't it the way it's always done? Hmm. Right? Uh, you know, it might have just been the environment we were in. I don't know. I mean, when you're in a situation where um, the culture piece is so... Is, is so um, impactful and 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 
you know what I'm saying? It it, it was yeah. just such a big piece of the pie uh, of the puzzle that had to be solved that it made sense that when we're hiring teachers that we're looking for something special. Mm-hmm. If if a teacher came and they didn't uh, demonstrate in an interview question that they had the, had the ability to manage a classroom, um, then we look for, but is there something in their spirit? Is there mm-hmm. something in their psyche? Is there something that is coming through to us in this conversation that tells us we can teach that person this, that they have a heart for um, what you called uh, love and limits. Your team talked about how much they laughed, that they laughed together all the time. And they said, you know, this was really hard work and it wasn't gallows humor. They weren't laughing because, oh my God, we're stuck here. They were, they were laughing because there were good things to laugh about and they enjoy, they were able to enjoy each other and the kids as difficult as the work was and as troubled as some of the kids were. What's your reaction to that? Um, uh, that's great to hear. I think I, I, I know that I knew that. Uh, but yeah, that's, um, there was not a day that I came to Bailey that I did not absolutely love my work until the end. Mm-hmm. Um, not a day. And it was um, probably some of the hardest work I've ever done yeah. um, as a leader. And, but there was never a day when I walked in the door, even C- Christian was the same way. When we walked in the door, we were smiles, we were energized, mm-hmm. we were positive, you know. Um, so, and, and I also say too, that, uh, sometimes you're going to laugh or you're going to cry. You're going to do one yeah. or the other. Yeah. So, so I choose to laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, I mm-hmm. also say that, uh, laughter is, is like a good medicine and it really is, uh, when, when it gets hard, mm-hmm. um, because it gets hard, uh, when kids harm themselves, when kids are harmed, yes. uh, in their community, when, when, when devastating and sad thing, outcomes happen because they did during our time, uh, we still have to to fall back on uh, the possibility of joy in that place. And it was always there. Yes. And so, so we pulled on that for our strength. Claire Jasper is an educator with considerable experience and a large measure of wisdom. She is not naive, and neither were the other members of the culture team. They knew the task before them. The Bailey students and students at other so-called failing schools were casualties of a national edupolitical system of surveillance and artificial accountability, and casualties as well of Nashville's march toward it city status that prioritized development over public goods like education. But the truth is that the less than status of these students was set long before No Child Left Behind or the rise of the new Nashville. Ainsley Erickson's 2016 book, Making the Unequal Metropolis, documents how Nashville became an educational space where other people's children are not systematically cared for. In a 2020 BET series called Disrupt and Dismantle, journalist Soledad O'Brien takes up the school-to-prison pipeline in Nashville, where high levels of incarceration plague black neighborhoods, and where black neighborhoods have been systematically held down by the construction of Route 40, for instance, or erased 
by focus gentrification. You can find those sources posted on our website at chasingbaileypod.com. Listen now as Whitney Bradley Weathers introduces us to Casey Holmes, the federal housing project where so many students lived. Okay, so Casey Holmes was the largest, is, is right now the largest housing project that still exists in Nashville. So um, it's up a beautiful hill from the Titan Stadium, and it is at the heart of the gentrification battle that's happening in Nashville. The Casey Homes is uh, representative of generational poverty. Um, there are grandmothers and mothers and then granddaughters who all raise their children in the Casey Homes. And it is just, it's a culmination of what has happened to black people who have been underserved for many, 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 many years. There's high rates of crime, there's high rates of teen pregnancy, high rates of drug use, there's frequent police activity, and it is connected to this very small um, nonprofit organization called the Martha O'Brien Center, which offers childcare and mental health services, it offers food and tutoring and things like that, but um, the Casey Homes, I think, has over 4,000 residents or something really crazy like that in it. And so um, it's also located in a food desert. You cannot get to a grocery store unless you take a city bus, which means that inevitably the main food source for those children is going to be the gas station that's within walking distance or school. Um, when Nashville has ice storms, you almost cannot get to the Casey Homes um, housing project because of the hills that it is located on. Um, the lack of maintenance, right, and custodial care around the housing projects almost makes it like this, really this island, um, this island, right? And so um, the majority of our students came from the Casey Home housing project. And so anything that happened in the community the night before would find itself sitting in the middle of our classroom that same day. We already know that Bailey was a school many viewed as out of control. Christian Sawyer found out the hard way how Bailey was regarded in the community. I can remember one of the most painful uh, moments, impressions in my early experience at Bailey, where I had an encounter with um, a local police officer who had um, been working with the community at some point. And he said to me that he and his colleagues referred, had referred to our school community as the jungle, which I, you know, just stunned me in the moment that that phrase would be used to describe these amazing children and young people. Um, but I think it reflected the deeply, deeply entrenched racism, uh, institutionalized uh, oppression that was encircling in the entire school um, and these incredibly promising young people's future. If things were so bad, 
Why didn't Dr. Jasper and the team just clamp down, take a no-excuses approach like so many ed reform proponents were glorifying at the time? And why did the teachers take their cue from the culture team? Dr. Jasper already gave us a hint when she and I talked about love and limits. It's not no excuses or love the living daylights into them. It's love them and set limits. Here's what Dr. Sawyer says about this critical and pragmatic, but also idealistic and progressive stance. I think that I go back to our entire definition, um, identity, I think as a team was focused on being a learning organization from every single aspect, teachers, principals, we were all learning along with the students. And Dr. Jasper brought in this culture revolution that helped educators, all of us, grow through this idea that middle schoolers were learning as they grew through their behavior. That, you know, behavior is an expression of learning, it's expression of growth. It's not about control. It's not about consequences that are singular in nature. It's about learning through those moments as young people and, and as teachers and educators, guiding, growing students through these moments rather than assigning consequences and responses. And I think that was why the teachers, all of us grew through this, I think, progressive vision because we realized that that is how young people learn and grow. That it's, and it works. It helps young people grow, learn in those moments and start to achieve the excellence inside each of them in, in classroom learning. So I think that in the end, we moved away from um, external control and moved into a culture of learning in all of those moments. Dr. Jasper's and Dr. Sawyer's positivity about the culture team's work is palpable. Still, sometimes when a leader offers a description of practice, it doesn't ring true for the folks who are actually doing the work on the ground. That's not the case for the Bailey culture team. I had already talked with members of the culture team before I talked with Dr. Jasper. I heard the same things over and over. For this group of professionals, the team mattered. Here, Dean Yolanda Porter describes the team for us. So we had what we call the culture team. It mm -hmm. included uh, the deans, the principal, assistant principal, leads, uh, coaches, uh, counselors, social workers, uh, the community achieves, uh, stars counselor, that mm -hmm. attendance clerk, every, that whole team. Any, any aspect that dealt with a kid in any of those areas, attendance, behavior, and instruction, they were there. I think we just were blessed with a great group of people who mm -hmm. understood the assignment. <laughs> the first assignment was to get the building in a place where students could be in a classroom to learn and teachers could teach. Mm -hmm. So we had to get some things put in place, some, um, some programming, some strategies, some new rules that were consistently, you know, getting teacher buy-in on the things that were being implemented. Um, 
so that we could create that environment where students could learn and teachers could teach. So that was the first thing and decrease our behavior referrals. Oh my gosh. And we did that the first year. It was, it was taxing, but I was like, y'all, I can't keep doing this by myself. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was a lot. So when Dean Taylor joined on as a dean, he said, honey, I don't know how you did it. I would see you downstairs and then I would see you upstairs and down the hall all in the same minute. I don't know how you did it. So he yeah. said, I was more than happy to come join and help because you look like you needed it. He said, but you handled it. I think they did well with picking the right people for the right population. Mm -hmm. um, I think... That's a good point. Right people for the right population. Yeah. Um, you have to ask the right questions in interviews. And having a diversity in your interview team is crucial because mm -hmm. everybody comes from different backgrounds. And most of us came from backgrounds working with this population of students and parents. Mm -hmm. um, having personal experiences, um, I think with this team, if you sat down and talked to this team about some personal experiences, many of us were those kids. Um, so we understand we just made different choices and got out. And that's why we would share. We were very transparent. We would tell some of the things that we've gone through that were similar to their behaviors. Like the, you, you're, you don't have to be where you're from. I'm telling you, and, and you have some good people in this community, but then you have those that want to be good, but don't know how they never had the example. And so sometimes you're trying to change the mindset and the culture of not just the kids, mm -hmm. but the parents mm -hmm. as well. You're mm -hmm. dealing with. 20 to 25 years of habits that you're trying to break down walls to get through in these parents who didn't have the examples that they needed to raise themselves, let alone their children, uh, you know, to be productive citizens in society. Social worker Dr. Keith Ekator gives voice to the value of this particular team. So I think with the culture team, um, that was my work family. Um, and having that was priceless, you know. Um, we knew we had team members we can count on. We had people that were consistent. Um, and we had people that cared about the kids and, and staff as well. Um, but I think when we talk about culture, it helps to create those conditions within the building to maximize student learning, maximize their ability to be present and not have to worry about stuff. Um, so, you know, when teachers notice these things, they would call us. Teachers were like, is Mr. Keith or Mr. Haggard, Dr. Haggard in the building? Or, you know, we were able to work effectively as a team. So I think having that culture team was invaluable. Community and schools coordinator, Dr. Kevin Haggard, also a social worker, noted that the team had an impact greater than the sum of the parts, partly because of their background in kids' social emotional development and partly because of the sheer number of folks who brought strength to bear on the issue of culture at Bailey. I think for us as both as, as a master's in social work, I think that's at the, at the root of what we learned in our education, right? The, the trauma-informed lens, the restorative practices, all of that stuff was just, was, was almost inherent for us because it was just our innate for, uh, for us because it was what we were always taught. Um, so coming in and hearing it framed that way was one thing but similar to what Dr. Porter said, it was always something that we were already doing. That's the way that we were trained. And, and, and I mean, beyond training, you have to have the natural uh, inclination to be able to do that stuff. But I think as social workers for, for Dr. Ikado and myself, that was that was just natural. It was just the way that we had to approach the work. Um, <clears throat> I was, communities and schools, of course, wasn't in every school. Um, there wasn't a full-time social worker at every school. 
Uh, we had two school counselors, two oh, wow. dean, dean of students, uh, stars. Yeah, Miss McNeil. She was. I forgot about Miss McNeil. Uh, we had. We even had at one point communities in schools and community achieves with with Dr. Holliman. So I mean, we had oh. a lot of different resources that were available to us, uh, to, to, to us, to students, to families throughout that, throughout our tenure at Bailey. And I think that all of that uh, was paramount in us being able to be so effective with students uh, and families. But then I think too, um, again, a testament to Dr. Sawyer's leadership, a testament to Dr. Jasper's leadership, we all had the efficacy to do what we needed to do. Uh, we knew we were very clear about what needed to be done. We were very clear about what our role was as a group. Uh, about as a community at the end of the day uh, i mean the the work was tough the, the shit was hard day in and day out but it was a lot of fun uh when i when i went out when i woke up that morning every morning i was excited to go to the go to bailey um we did have disagreements there were times when we didn't see eye to eye but there was lots of laughter there was lots of fun and you have to you have to have that when you're doing that work, when you're taking on those those challenges, you have to have the fun, you have to have the laughter, and that those relationships have to be built organically. Perhaps because the team shared a focus on trauma-informed teaching several years before it became a hot topic, the culture team never thought of themselves as muscle. Dr. Jasper admitted that limits and urgency were needed to establish a productive environment for teaching and learning but she also insisted that creating culture was about love. Dean Porter gave voice to how the culture team coached the instructional staff to keep the focus on scholars learning through both love and limits. That's what I told him, you give your power away every time you call me into this environment. And that's what we would talk about, uh, setting boundaries, being consistent, being consistent and fair across the board. If you address one for something, you address the other person that's doing the very same thing in that instant, not just the one that gets on your nerves every day. When you they called you, you didn't come to take kids away. You came to sort of coach them on how to how to do what they needed to do. Do, do you feel like that's, I mean, that that's accurate. That feels that right. is what that was what I tried to do. The only way I would remove a kid is if they were fighting, throwing something, or to that nature. Because my first question is, what happened and what have you done already to address it? Mm -hmm. So if you haven't done anything to address it, then we're gonna have I'll have a conversation with the student and then we can figure out a time where if you want me to facilitate a conversation between you and this child, we can do that. But what have you done? Because I can't keep, you can't keep giving me your power um, because I have a different level of power that you want me to enforce, which is exclusionary. And that's, that can't, the kid would never change or learn if I, if I keep doing that. The culture team's responsiveness to the teachers without muscle, but with urgency, enabled the teachers to grow in their capacity to respond to kids and it enabled the members of the culture team to do the kind of work they were there to do. I think I, I fell into a perfect position myself. I can speak for me that I had the buy-in from, from my direct manager at that time uh, who trusted in me to be able to do that, gave me the efficacy to be able to do that. So we were given a lot of the autonomy and a lot of efficacy to be able to do our jobs. And when you have that, you're naturally going to do, you're, you're going to innovate. You're going to be able to do things um, to really address what the needs are when you're given the leeway and the freedom um, to be able to do that. 
Uh, and then I think just that presence allowed, you know, I can speak for myself, allowed me to then go beyond that, to build a relationship, not only with students, but with the staff, with the staff members, with the teachers. I know Kevin mentioned having a small budget. And I think this is one of Kevin's strengths is what you lack in resources, you make up for in resourcefulness. And I think even though he may have not had always had the money, he went out and found those agencies that were willing to step in to provide the massages for the teachers, to provide, you know, funding for breakfast, like with Horace Mann and partner with all these different agencies. So, you know, part of his role was bringing those people into the building to help support the needs of the school. And, you know, I think that complements the team because, you know, we all had our strengths. And I think that was one of his strengths in helping to support the teachers, um, helping to support the staff, and also, more importantly, supporting the students. Resident Keenan Kerr's comments make clear just how completely the teaching staff bought into the culture plan. An interesting point that I also think is something that's very different about Bailey is the kid was going to stay in the classroom. There was no other alternative. You know, in most schools, th there's always a place where you send kids when they're not cooperating for whatever reason. And there really was, again, to my recollection, no such place at, at Bailey. So you were forced, for lack of a better word, to try to fix as a teacher in partnership with the student, of course, whatever was wrong or whatever was not right. Again, I think the key difference at Bailey that I haven't necessarily always seen in other school settings is their approach was, I'm not coming in to solve this problem for you. I'll help you. We're going to work together. But it was never a, I'm, okay, I'll just take this student off your hands, you know, which is sometimes the path of least resistance, but it doesn't necessarily fix the underlying issue. Laura Lothman, who was a resident in the fifth grade, referred to the support she received specifically from Dean Taylor's work and how his modeling of relationship impacted her own work in the classroom. You know, Dean Taylor, Art Taylor, um, in terms of su feeling supported with, um, you know, s working with students and, um, you know, and, and I think it was observing his interactions with students that was kind of, you know, him being a black male, uh, watching him interact with students, it was like, okay, Laura, there's no way you could use any of that. But it wasn't about even like what he was saying, but it's this, it was all built on this, these relationships he had with them. Because even when he was, um, you know, having a hard conversation with a kid, right? It was, there was this understanding of like, I'm doing this because I love you. And I'm saying these things because I want you to have this, this life that has everything and more you want. And, and he was able to joke with them. Cassie Beasley, a fifth grade science teacher, was well aware of Dr. Jasper's desire to break the school to prison pipeline. And she valued that commitment. That's one of the things that I think I liked the most. Uh, we, 
I, I can't express how much how much it means to a kid and also how much it it means to a teacher to have that part where you work it out, where you get to tell a kid and mean it. That's the important part. I really want you in class. What's something else that we can do other than suspending you to keep you in class? Um, do you want me to walk around and do community service with you during lunch? Like do you, after your lunch is finished, do you, you know, like just different, there were all kinds of different things that we would do. Um, but she, I just feel like she did a great job of including both the kids and the teachers in the process of that. I felt like that vision was really clear to us. Um, at least from my perspective, I won't speak for everyone. School counselor and culture team member April Roberts talks about how this mindset was woven into every thread of both social and academic interaction at Bailey, how everything was intentional, but that she didn't realize it until she saw the results of it working. I like the fact that there was a plan to create a school identity. Creating that school culture and climate, you had a school song, you had themes in the hallways because the walls were painted with the to keep that uh, connection of like we are steam magnet school it was known it was integrated into all classes um even though we had the steam class for the related arts um, the whole steam concept was fully integrated ongoing training was provided for the teachers um I like the fact that training in general was provided to the teachers on de-escalation, recognizing the need of your population, um, looking at data and um, providing, like we had restorative practice training, we had, uh, what was the restraint training? It was just a lot of proactive uh, preparations that was in place, but it was a lot of proactive planning for various things. Everything was intentional. Um, even calling the students scholars. It was intentional. And I actually still keep that, that principle to this day, wherever I travel to, where no matter what your circumstance, no matter what your background, we are all here and capable of getting a quality education. You have a right to a quality education and we're not gonna use all these other things as an excuse. We're gonna treat you with respect. Cause he had a thing where, well, both of them had a thing where you never yell and talk down to any of these children because they recognized that the kids had traumas in their backgrounds. And they reckon they, they had a full understanding of the population of students that entered that building. Art Taylor, who folks have already called out as an educator who had the right heart for the work, and who stepped into a dean's position in 2014, handling the fifth and sixth grades, speaks to the shared beliefs, the enjoyment of working together, and the payoff for the students and parents. I mean, everybody just came together. You know, every day was not sunshine and lollipops. But I think when you get to, got to the core of, you know, why we were there, um, I think everybody had the same uh, core belief about the population we served. And, and, and that was, I mean, that was shown. I loved the fifth and sixth grade teens. We were just, you know, we, I, I remember having some IEP meetings and uh, meetings with parents where, you know, sometimes tears were shed because it, the teachers felt so passionate about 
the kids and then the parents would come in and talk about, you know, how much progress their child has made and how they were reluctant to keep them at Bailey or even send them to Bailey. But then they were glad that they did after, you know, meeting with the teens. Dr. Haggard echoes Mr. Taylor. I think Bailey was a great school. I feel like it had the support in place. It had the right um, um, faculty and staff in place. I think for the most part, of course, there was some here and there, but for the most part, everyone cared about students uh, were, and were invested um, in the well-being of students. So when I think about a school, social emotional wellness is the most important thing for me in terms of the way I measure it. And it may have something to do with my skill set as well. But for me and my child, like that's more important to me than someone telling me that this is the top academic school. Because I'm saying, okay, well, what socially and economic, you know, socially emotionally, how are you doing? Um, and in my experience, there's always a question there, especially when you see those really high performing as they deem them schools. So there's always a question about that social emotional wellness, and so. And you know the the other thing that I that I haven't called attention to, and just hearing you say that uh, really ref- refreshed it for me. We ha- I had fun. I can't speak for other people, but we laughed. You know, we were in the hallway laugh. You know, it was we had fun. Uh, I, I had I had a lot of fun doing that job. It's, I don't know that since then that I've had that much fun. I had a lot of fun working with 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 uh, with those folks and the students and the families as well. Um, I had fun. So how did this alternative vision, this love and limits commitment, take hold so quickly and thoroughly with teachers? It wasn't easy or automatic. There was some early resistance to the demands of trauma-informed instruction and restorative justice, as Karen Doris Wolfson describes. I totally, I, I totally under, understand and get, like, restorative practices and why it is the best way to truly, I guess, discipline. Um, But I do also see where like it was frustrating at times too, because, you know, a child would take over the whole classroom and then the punishment, um, you know, wouldn't be that they're out of your class the next day. And that just, I, I think that basically the point that I got to was that I just had to reframe my mindset around that. Like that this, like having them out of the classroom isn't what's best for kids. It put this challenge in front of teachers that, and we, we know this, that like someone else can't like discipline the child for the behavior that happened in your class. And then them come back the next day and then their behavior change at all, right? Like it's gotta, it's gotta be, you have to get through to that kid somehow. It's a you and that kid issue, right? It's not like a, the assistant principal and that kid, they weren't even in there. Um, so I think that's where it's, where, you know, we had support and techniques and strategies for how to build relationships with kids, right? And to, um, 
find other ways to get, I, I mean, I just remember my first year being just so distraught about this, my first class, my first period class, like, you know, yeah. And just how it was just, but by the end of the year, you know, we had it like working like clockwork and it took a lot of individualized effort, which some, some people wouldn't want to put in that effort. Kristen Petroni, a math teacher, captures the Bailey culture by saying, we had no other option but to be amazing. And she recognizes that this amazingness was supported by the team structure that ensured enough time for restorative interactions with students. Sort of our attitudes and our, um, you know, uh, determination, I guess, to do it sort of rubbed off on them. And and I think that that also was really helped limit a lot of the um, negative behaviors we had in class. Um, you know, things like that, where it, they knew when they walked in, we weren't playing. We had work to do and we were serious and they had learned and they needed to handle. And, and so as time went on and they sort of grew into that mentality, um, I feel like by the time spring came around and, you know, it was time for state testing and whatnot, there there was no other option but to be amazing because that's all we've been doing for the whole year, you know, the, the whole restorative thing. It worked, I've never been at a school where it worked as well as it did at Bailey. Um, I tried, <laughs> sure did try <laughs> at other places, but I, again, I think a big piece of it was having the support of people like Karen Doris and knowing that if I needed to stop for a minute and have a conversation with a student outside, she was going to be there to either carry on the lesson or at least monitor while the students were doing independent work or whatever. And as well as Ben Pryor, the teacher resident, you know, we, we had the capability to do that. You know, there would be times if maybe it was a student that he sort of had a, a stronger relationship with where he might grab that student and pull them out while I continue teaching or, you know, it was, and it was sort of unsaid too. I think we all just kind of knew and, it was just a matter of just sort of a look. I could just kind of look at him and sort of nod and he knew exactly what to do and he would be able to take them out and have that conversation and get them right back into learning, you know? Whereas, because um, I feel like we did have an ISS that year, I think, an in-school suspension room and um, I never used it. <laughs> and I really think that's the biggest reason why is I never really needed to use it because we were able to de-escalate and have those conversations immediately on the spot, <clears throat> excuse me, and we could get them right back into learning seamlessly without disrupting the classroom, without too much time away from education for that particular student, because we all sort of had that, the adults had that relationship with each other to just know, and we were all doing the same thing, and it just, it was great, it really worked. So there you have it. In some sense, Dr. Jasper is the star of this episode, but she would be the first to tell you that the work of radical relationships, the work that helps limits make sense, cannot be done by just one person. It requires structures and infrastructures that ensure time for both hard conversations and easy exchanges, for tears and laughter. And it relies on the slow burn of responsibility made and responsibility taken by all in the community. At Bailey, the spark for that burn came from the culture team. You have probably noticed 
that we haven't yet considered curriculum, the place where most educational reformers start. An obvious oversight? Maybe. But listen next time as we dive deeply into the content of the Bailey curriculum with its ethos of acceleration, of collaborative inquiry, of personalized learning, and cultural responsiveness. It turns out that none of this would be possible without the culture of teaming that animates Bailey. <laughs>